Dear Heavenly Father, you have been so good, Father, to bring us through another book of the Scriptures. Uh, We count these as accomplishments, not of our own power, Father, but of yours. And it's your faithfulness on display when we come through one of these studies, Father, for uh, there are so many things that could have called us off from being here to being a part of this. So many ways we could have been distracted, but Lord, you saw fit to make sure we were here, we understood what we were given, and I do pray, Father, we'll use it in the way you prescribe. And Father, it's also the joy that we have in seeing the wisdom that you've put on display in these letters come to life in our own lives through the Holy Spirit as we learn things that have immediate practical application to the way we live. What wisdom is it, Father, that could cause you to give men words 2,000 years ago for a different age and a different place And yet those same words, Father, can be so important and so necessary for us today. Truly, Father, this world will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we look at your text this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as I've said now on multiple occasions, this is the final chapter in the letter, the 16th chapter of Paul's letter to Corinth. And we're going to finish it today. With this 16th chapter, we reach the last two questions that Paul answers from this church, the two questions that finish the series of things he was asked by this church when they sent a delegation to him in Ephesus, asking him to settle a bunch of arguments and to explain a bunch of different disputes. The two questions we're going to see today in this chapter, the first concerns the proper manning, the proper manner for the giving to the needs of the saints. And then second question dealt with the possible return of Apollos to Corinth. And as you're going to see in this chapter, both of those questions are addressed with a single verse answer in both cases. But then you wonder, well, what's the rest of the chapter about? Well, the rest of it is Paul wrapping up the letter with some words of encouragement to the church and instructions on how to obey leaders and the like. What is not to be found in this final chapter, though, is any more correction, which has been so common as we've seen throughout this letter. Paul correcting the church, admonishing the church on things they were not doing properly. All of that's behind us at this point. All that remains our instructions. And Paul opens the chapter with that now familiar phrase, now concerning, which indicates we're moving into a new topic, away from the prior topic of resurrection and into the new one. Let's start there. Verses 1 through 4 as we open up chapter 16. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. The next question the church asked Paul to address was, what's the proper manner for how we give or collect for the needs of the saints? And Paul's answer gives us an opportunity to examine the biblical expectation for how we are to support the body of Christ financially. One of the reasons I'm dedicated to preaching and teaching through the Bible in a verse-by-verse style, as you see me do here every Sunday, rather than through a topical style, which is common in many other churches, it gives me the opportunity to address sensitive issues. As you move through books of the Bible, teaching the whole counsel of God, as we do here, inevitably, you're going to come across a topic on some page of the Bible that you don't want to hear. It's going to be the thing that makes you defensive. It's going to be the thing that makes you angry. It's going to be the one thing you've always said, I don't agree with that thing, whatever it is. And when a topical teacher 
comes to the pulpit and raises that thing, whatever it is, you and I are tempted by our flesh to accuse the preacher of having some kind of ulterior motive, some kind of hidden agenda, don't we? Rather than crediting the Holy Spirit with drawing our attention to a problem in our thinking and our behavior, we tell ourselves that the pastor is just picking a fight. The pastor has some ulterior motive. They decided to raise that topic today because they have some need. Maybe they've heard something about my life. They want to pick on me. It's all defensively set aside. And on the basis of that thinking, we find our excuse to dismiss whatever instructions come from the teacher and hold on to our preconceived notions, don't we? The opening topic of chapter 16 is a good example of one of these sensitive issues. Some of us have been conditioned through our prior experiences in other churches to react negatively to any discussion of giving. I'm one of them. If I come to a church for the first time and it's a topical teaching church and the pastor happens to choose the topic of giving, all of my defenses go right up. You're going to have that same experience, perhaps. You've been conditioned, perhaps, to think that there is some other motive. We assume the pastor wants the money for himself. He's got some ambitious building plan, some grandiose plan for how to make the building into a showplace. We brace ourselves for the guilt trip that we know must be coming somewhere soon. And as a result, we close our ears, we close our hearts to whatever the pastor is going to say. That, in a nutshell, friends, is the problem with topical teaching. On the other hand... When you and I have been studying through a book of the Bible verse by verse, first verse to the last one, first chapter to the last one, then everything changes because both I as the teacher and you as the audience are constrained by what we find on the pages of the text. We have to address whatever topic there is. And we don't have the excuse now to say, well, he just raises that topic because he's got some ulterior motive. No, I didn't. I'm just reading it. I'm just going through it with you, right? Verse by verse teaching ensures that the ears and the hearts of the audience remain open since you can no longer impugn the motives of the teacher. Now, you still may not like it. That's not something I can control. But whatever you say to yourself, you can't say it's Steve's problem. It's either your problem or it's the Bible's problem, but it's not my problem. The Holy Spirit chose it, so we need to listen to it. Now, the church in Corinth has asked Paul, what is the proper practice for giving? Apparently, they're unclear on exactly how the church was to practice regular giving to the needs of the saints. So Paul's answer now comes. And this answer is going to surprise you. I suspect it surprises many Christians, both for what he does say, but also, friends, for what he does not say, which you may have been taught. Paul says in verse one that he is going to give to this church in Corinth instructions that are the same as what he gives to other churches, particularly the church in Galatia. That comment's really important because it tells us that Paul's teaching a consistent approach to giving throughout the New Testament church. He is not giving one particular set of instructions in one case, a different set elsewhere. These are not unique. They're not tied to time or location or circumstance. These are the prescribed instructions for how the church is to give, both in his day and in our day, today. And then in verse 2, Paul gives us the manner. He gives the answer. Now, before we look at his instructions, let's take a moment to reflect on how little Paul has to say on this topic. To my knowledge, this is the only verse in the entire New Testament that specifically addresses the manner of giving in the church. Let me say that again. This is the only verse. Now, 
To be sure, Jesus speaks frequently about money as a topic in the Gospels. He talks about our need to be generous. He talks about selflessness and being unattached to our wealth. He talks about storing up treasure in heaven, not on earth. He talks about being a good steward and seeking to care for the needs of those who have needs like the poor. We get all of that, yes. But when you ask what are the rules for New Testament giving, you get one verse in the entire Bible. One Now, consider how much preaching takes place on this topic. Something is desperately wrong in the church when preachers are far more fixated on Christian giving than the Bible is. But that's where we stand today. It tells us more about their heart than it does about the Bible. Also, I want you to take note of one particular word that is missing from Paul's directions here. What one word did you expect to hear, perhaps, But yet it never appeared. Tithe or tithing. The word tithe, it just means one tenth in scripture. The common teaching, though, in the church today, as you may have heard it elsewhere, is that, well, Israel was required to give one tenth of their income to the house of God. And therefore, today, Christians are required to give one tenth of their income to the church. But friends, in reality, neither of those statements is true biblically. Neither of them is true. Neither the one about Israel nor the one about us today. In reality, tithe has a different history. Begins in chapter 14 of Genesis. It's the time in which Abraham met Melchizedek, the priest and king in that ancient time, having just defeated the kings of the north and defending his nephew Lot. He comes back with the spoils of war. He meets Melchizedek and then as a thanks offering to God through this priest, Abraham gives one tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, a tithe. And then later, under Israel's day, The Lord incorporated the concept of a tithe into the law that he gave to that nation. But Israel was required to give far more than one-tenth of their income. That's something most people don't know if they haven't studied the Bible properly. In reality, the law requires three separate tithes for those who lived in Israel. In Numbers 18, they were required to give one-tenth to support the priests. In Deuteronomy 12, the nation was required to give an additional tenth to support the operations of three feasts that took place every year in Jerusalem, that is Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And then in Deuteronomy 14, they're required to give a third tithe, a tenth, again, for the needs of the poor. So taken together, the tithing requirements in Israel were upwards of 30%. So if someone today argues that Christians should repeat the pattern of Israel, you need to be careful what you ask for. Because you're signing up for a commitment well beyond 10%. You're signing up for 30% if you're going to actually do what you say should be done. But of course, as we know from Scripture, Christians are not bound under the law of Moses. We do not live according to the commandments given to a nation of a different day and in a different place under a covenant that we are not part of, the old covenant. That's a law given to Israel. Paul tells us in numerous places, if we are under the grace of the new covenant, then we are no longer under law. And therefore, the tithing requirements of the Old Testament covenant are not for us. They're not our standard. They do not guide us in our giving. They're not wrong. They're not bad. They're just not ours. In fact, friends, you cannot tithe according to the law, even if you wanted to, because the institutions that were designated by the law to receive those tithes don't exist anymore. The law says give your money to the priests, 
The law says give your money to the temple. The Jewish priesthood does not exist anymore. The Jewish temple is not operating today. Even if you wanted to keep those requirements, you can't because you can't take those ties and put them in the place they've been prescribed. Now, some people say, well, the equivalent of the temple today is the church. No, 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 no. You can't do that with text of scripture. You can't go into the law and say, well, God said this, but I'm going to make it into something else. He said, do this or you don't qualify. You cannot do it, friends. You can't. That's why Paul never uses the word tithe in any of his letters. In fact, the concept of tithing is completely missing from the New Testament. It doesn't show up anywhere. Simply put, the Bible never commands a Christian to tithe, period. So if you've ever heard a Bible teacher or a preacher tell you that you have an obligation to tithe, that is to give 10% of your income to the church, then friends, you have not heard the truth. You may have believed it with all your heart and you may have had the best intentions when you tried to live up to it. And you're not wrong, by the way, if you choose to give 10% to your church. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you have ever operated under the concept that you're required to, that God has laid that burden on you, then let me be the first to lift that burden off your shoulders, friends, because that's not what the Bible teaches. So with that background, now we're in a position to consider Paul's instructions with an open mind, I hope. Perhaps with an unburdened shoulder, perhaps with a heart ready to follow the law of Christ led by the spirit, as opposed to a heart that was constrained by a law given to a nation of whom you are not part of in a covenant that you are not part of. First, Paul asked the church to put aside money on the first of every week. Now, I don't think Paul said the first of the week here in order to define specifically the periosity of our giving. If I don't know how to say it, most people probably have no clue what I'm talking about. In other words, he is saying be regular, be consistent. Do it in a manner that is programmed and designed to keep you honest weekly, monthly, on the 1st and the 15th, on every paycheck, on some period that makes clear you're not going to just do it when you feel like it. You're going to do it consistently. He tells people on the first of the week, if you want to follow that specific instruction, be my guest. It's certainly not a bad one. But whatever you do, be consistent. I want you to notice Paul never designates an amount. In fact, you will never find an amount of your giving designated in Scripture for the New Testament believer. Not a tenth, not a twentieth, not a fifth. Nothing is ever specifically given to us because we are under liberty. The New Testament law of Christ that's written on our hearts gives us liberty. And liberty means we're not constrained by the letter of law, but rather we're guided by what is righteous. And righteousness is given to us through the Spirit's instruction. Having been made righteous by Christ's blood, we now are free to live in liberty to follow the Spirit wherever he takes us. And he may take me somewhere differently than he takes you. You may be compelled by the Spirit to give more. I might be given freedom to give less. That might switch itself in a future day. We will go where the Spirit takes us on this issue, as we do with any issue. We set aside, Paul says, whatever amount the Lord places on our hearts. Now, if you feel led to set aside 10%, then do it. If you feel led to give more or less then do it. But whatever you do, you must be convinced in your own heart that that is what the Lord is asking of you. And if you do differently than what he is asking of you, then you sin, no matter what the amount is. But notice in the next part of verse 2, Paul says we should set aside as we prosper. In other words, as our income rises or falls, so should our setting aside. 
In good months and in good years, we should be expected to become more generous. And in lean times, it's natural for us to adjust our savings downward accordingly. This only makes sense, right? But we all know it's a lot easier to adjust downward than it is to remind ourselves to adjust back upward when things come back to a healthy status. We need to be flexible in both directions. Then Paul says no collection was to be made when Paul arrives in Corinth. This is one of the most important principles that I operate my ministry under. When Paul arrived in any city, like he does here in Corinth, he always asked that city to make a contribution for the needs of a church in another city, in another city. So notice in verses three and four, Paul mentions he has this intention to take the contributions he's going to get from Corinth to believers in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was historically a very poor church. And so he's intending to take a gift from Corinth to Jerusalem. But when Paul first came to Corinth back years earlier, he had come from Macedonia. And when he traveled from Macedonia to Corinth, it was the believers in Macedonia that financed Paul's mission work down into Corinth that allowed Paul to do the work of ministering and founding the church in Corinth. Originally, the point is, Paul didn't take money from the people he was ministering to. He was serving them on the largesse of people he had served in the past. And then once he had served this group without burdening them and asking them for anything, once they had been served, then he would turn around and say, "Okay, now I'm going to go serve this group over here. Partner with me in that work. Help me get ready to go over there so that the funds were always flowing through Paul to the next place. He wasn't putting that burden directly on the church where they were. If you go to Second Corinthians, just for a second, Second Corinthians chapter eight, Paul reminds Corinth of how he ministered to them without asking anything, so that now he could ask them. Look at Second Corinthians eight one. He says, "Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality." For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Paul's reminding the church in Corinth, look, when I came to you and I supported you in ministry years ago, do you know who paid for that trip? The folks in Macedonia. And these folks were dirt poor while Corinth was the richest part of the richest province. Both Ephesus and Corinth were horribly rich, terribly rich cities. Think about this. The poorest place in the empire was supporting the needs of Paul when he traveled to the richest place. And Paul says they they gave according to their ability. In fact, they gave beyond their ability because they wanted to be a part of this work of God in Corinth. And so Paul turned that around to them in the second letter and he said to them, "Okay, now, guys, it's your turn. Support me as I go back to Macedonia. So Paul didn't want collections taken on the occasion of his visit because he didn't want his arrival somewhere to be a cause for that group then to have to give for his needs in the moment. That would turn every arrival of Paul into a burden. Every time Paul went somewhere, you'd have the church rolling their eyes going, oh, great, we've got to roll another collection for this guy. I feel like that's what happens in churches when I guest preach if they want to give me an honorarium. I work really hard to tell them no. No honorarium. Don't want it. Don't need it. Thank you very much. Why? Because I don't want someone to say, oh, here we go, another guest preacher. Pull out your wallet, honey. And then the heart to listen is clouded by a concern over this person's financial motives. 
when I don't have any. So why even let that be a conversation in the room? Paul didn't want the gospel to be impeded because as he shows up, the conversation is all about money. So he brought money, money from other believers. Our ministry, verse by verse ministry, has this same pattern. We never ask funds from those we serve. We instead depend on the generosity of those who have been blessed by our work in the past and they want to ensure that our work will go somewhere new in the future and bless someone else. So we come asking nothing, but we're enabled to come because someone who got blessed in the past is saying, hey, Steve, do it for someone else. And so we just turn that around and we use it for the next church. That's Paul's pattern. That's the pattern of the New Testament. And then the last thing he says, it is to go into savings. Boy, you won't hear many churches preaching this. In fact, I dare say you are sitting in one of the most unique places you could in the New Testament church right now. A church that tells you that the place that you're supposed to put your giving is in your own bank account. Paul says we are to save up privately for the needs of the saints. We are to set aside a portion of our income into a fund designated for the needs of the saints And then as needs are brought to the attention of the body, we have the needed resources available, which we can then designate as our giving to that need as the need becomes available. There is no requirement in Scripture that we give automatically to a single institution or a single body. There was never an expectation in the New Testament that churches would become big, wealthy corporate institutions with large business bank accounts in which they dole out the money on your behalf. You're supposed to give to the needs of the saints, not one person on your behalf, not some CFO running some large corporate enterprise that we call the church. You give it your money. You save it. You have a generous heart. You get the blessing. You give it. We don't depend on the church. We do it ourselves. Remember the three reasons the Lord gave Israel for their giving. He said they were called to support the need of the priests and the temple. That was the first of the three tithes. Remember? Well, today We are called to care for those who dedicate themselves to ministering to us in the form of our pastors and our leaders, right? And to the operation of this building to the extent we need it. Israel was called to support the feast celebrations in Israel. And we're called to support corporate activities of the body as well. And they were called to support the poor. We're called to support the needs of those in the church who may lack for one reason or another. All of those same reasons have parallels in the Christian experience. So before you think I'm throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I'm not. I'm saying that we have some of the same needs they had in different form. But we set aside funds to support the needs of those who minister to us or for the the programs of the church, the poor and those who have needs and so on. We do so in a self-disciplined, self-directed manner. If we have someone in the church who comes to us with a need or we have a building problem, uh, the roof falls apart. We have some other need that's central, that's fundamental to the operation of the church. Or we have a ministry opportunity in a neighborhood where we can go out with the gospel, but it's going to require money to put that program together. All of those sorts of things. If you have been telling yourself, well, I'll give when the time comes and not storing up privately, then the need goes out. We need five thousand dollars by next week from this church. You're going to write your fifty dollar check and be done with, it, aren't you? Or whatever you can afford in the moment. Paul says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want your occasion for the giving to be my arrival. That's a way of saying, I don't want you to wait till someone says they have a need and then you decide now's the time to set something aside. It won't work. Paul says, do it regularly. Then when the need arises, write the $2,000 check 
It's not your money anyway. You've set it aside. You've been saving it up all that time. It's not money you're depending on for anything. It's always been God's money. He's just finally connected the dots. You're giving the need the right moment. There it all is. I've asked my kids to do this, and they've taken on this practice. They don't tithe to the church. We don't give money away just casually because somebody said we have to. We save up privately. But my daughter, who's 21... And they've written multi-thousand dollar checks to friends who have gone on mission trips or to peers that have decided to go into full-time ministry and needed to get into seminary. And they're amazed that some 21-year-old can write a check for $2,000. They're like, where do you get this kind of money? Well, I've been saving it up, waiting for the moment God told me I'm supposed to give it away. Do you know what that does? It blesses someone in an unbelievable way that speaks to God. And from the point of view of the giver... It gives you this encouragement to know God can handle this. You don't need to worry about it. You don't have to fear that you won't ever find the right moment to give your money away. You won't have to fear that you'll be judged for not throwing it in the basket every week in the way everyone else does. You'll you'll see God working in a way that tells you he's got this under control. And the generous heart is blessed. Isn't that beautiful? Now, we do that on occasion here. We have needs that come up. We have a request go out. And we have money show up, which has always been a great blessing when we've needed that. But friends, what I suspect is happening is we give on a regular basis because someone told us to. Then we have to find the extra for the need that comes along unexpectedly. And then we all feel that sense of I'm tapped out. I'm done. I can't give anymore. But that may not be what God's asking us to do, right? God may have another need tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. But we're too busy doing something in a very robotic way. We must be self-disciplined to store. We must be willing to obey the Spirit's prompting. For how much we're storing, we have to have the integrity not to rob from that fund when we have our own needs come along, recognizing that that's God's money when we set it aside. It's not ours. And we must have the generosity to distribute it when the needs are given to us. Like every experience in Christian life, liberty is an opportunity to walk in the spirit and in freedom, but it depends upon spiritual maturity. Liberty in the hands of an undisciplined, immature Christian just becomes licensed to sin. And in the end, the one who suffers the most when we live that way is not Christ, certainly, and not even the church. It's us as we abuse our liberty. When we walk in obedience, then we are blessed. So now, what I have is three elders who are nervous that tomorrow all the money we depend on to pay the light bill and everything else is going to suddenly stop coming in. Do you know what? If that actually happened, I'm okay with that. Because what we would do is John would stand up here once a month and he'd say, here are the bills that we have to pay this month. I'll need checks this month for this amount. And if we've all been storing up privately, not just doing nothing with our money, but actually storing it up, then we would expect that same day a bunch of checks would show up in the box and it would cover all those bills and we'd move on. Now, there's a bit of logistical friction there because you know those bills are coming every month. You know John's going to ask for it every month. It's not a surprise every month. You see my point, right? At some point, it just becomes easier to say, well, I'm going to give the church a regular amount for the things I know they need regularly. And then the rest I'll store up privately for the needs that come along unexpectedly. That's probably the right balance in light of the nature of our business. The fact that there are some bills that are regular, others that are not. So I would still expect us to be regular in our giving to the needs because the needs are regular. Not just because it's an automatic thing. But if you're not storing up more than that, then when those other needs come along, we won't be ready. So it's a, I think it's put on everyone's heart here what the amount is. Do as you feel led. Store it up privately. Be generous when the needs come along. We'll be fine. And God will be pleased that we're obeying his word. Verse 5 through 12, Paul now describes his travel plans with the church. He says in verse 5, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, 
for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I am also. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with my brethren. Now, concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Paul wrote this letter with Timothy while they were serving together in Ephesus, and as he wrote here, he says he planned to travel north to Macedonia before he returned to Corinth. He's probably giving him these plans because remember at the beginning of this letter, there were these camps that said, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and so on. I'm assuming that his camp of fans were wondering, when's he coming back? And he says, well, I will, but I got to go through Macedonia first. We know from Second Corinthians that Paul changes his plans from what he says here. He goes directly to Corinth from Ephesus. He does not go through Macedonia. And he does spend this winter that he promised, but it's the next year. He actually took him a year longer to get there, a year later than he expected. He says, I want to spend all this time with you. I don't want to be just there for a moment. But, you know, after we just read this letter, do you kind of know why he probably wants to spend some extra time in this church? He says it nice here, but my suspicion is he knew there were so many problems in this church that he really needed to spend some quality time with these folks and get them straightened out. He does reference Pentecost here, which tells us he's writing this in the spring. It also suggests Paul's religious year was still based around the Jewish religious year, which is fine. We all have liberty to enjoy the feast if we care to. And then in verse 9, he speaks of an opportunity in Ephesus. I love this little aside he makes as he finishes his letter. He says he has a great opportunity in Ephesus for the gospel, which is why he's going to spend some time there. And he describes it as an open door. That's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for receptiveness to the gospel. There's something happening here. I can tell God's got an open door for me. I'm not going to walk away from this. I'm going to stick around. But then notice what he says. And this occasion, this open door occasion, is accompanied by many adversaries. That's a very different attitude than I see in the church today. Today, if you encounter adversaries or opposition, people often don't talk in terms of open doors, do they? They're quite the opposite. We say, oh, it's a closed door here. So many adversaries, so much resistance, their minds were shut, the doors were closed, we need to move on. Paul says, oh, no, 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 lots of opportunity, which is why there were lots of adversaries. Great opportunity, don't want to walk away from this, something's happening. The battle is here, in other words. This is where the front lines are. I want to be here. The true measure of opportunity in ministry is the amount of fruit available, not the ease with which we collect it. That's the measure of opportunity. Paul was determined to stay in Ephesus because he saw opportunity with Timothy and the great resistance that he faced was all the more reason to remain and fight the battle. We have to remember that when the world hates us and the gospel, they're simply living in the way of their forefathers who hated Christ. He says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you, too. From the beginning, from Cain, the unbeliever is opposed to the gospel and opposed to anyone who believes it because at a spiritual level, it reveals them to be one who is due God's judgment rather than one who is a part of his family. But that resistance can be won over, which is why we battle. Speaking of Timothy, Paul tells the church he will send Timothy in his place since he can't get there right away. And look how he tells them to receive Timothy. Please don't despise him. 
Yeah, that's quite an endorsement. Paul is simply speaking honestly here because he knew the Greek culture. The Greek culture placed an emphasis on strength and on age. Wisdom came with age. Strength was an indication of, of power and so on. And neither of these are things Timothy possessed. We know from other letters that he was young and he was prone to stomach problems, a kind of weakling. So you can imagine Paul's thinking as he sends this guy down to Corinth, he sends exactly the opposite of who they would naturally feel drawn to. And yet he sends him. He wasn't going to strike a powerful image, but Paul says, the Lord is working in Timothy. Receive him. Try not to despise him if you can get away with it, please. I think he intentionally sent him there, and this is why. I want you to think about how the letter began and now how it's ending. It began with the church siding with two powerful figures, Paul, Apollos, actually three if you count Cephas, Peter, and taking up sides for who was there. Who was going to be their patriarch? Who was going to be their leader? And they were all aligning behind men of power and might and strength in words and so on. And Paul says, I'll tell you what, I'm not sending you any more guys like that. I'm sending you Timothy. Try not to despise him. And then you're not going to have any temptation to single out one guy and follow him. This is another perspective verse by verse ministry tries to emulate. To the extent possible, we try to diminish my profile or the profile of the teachers in the ministry to guard against encouraging a celebrity mindset that is ultimately unhealthy in the church. My favorite letter, which we get from time to time uh, at the ministry, is someone saying, I listen to the teaching, really like it or whatever, but I can't figure out the name of the guy who's teaching. Could somebody please tell me who I'm listening to? Uh, we don't go out of our way to hide it. We just don't talk about it. And people who really desire it will find out, I guess. But the point is, that's Paul's intent in sending Timothy, a guy who will not stand out in the way that this church had an unhealthy interest in. And then lastly, the second question, the last question in the letter, a very short one. Do you notice he says, now concerning? Now concerning, when is Apollos coming back? I think this is, once again, on this same problem of the church having an unhealthy interest in one of their benefactors, Apollos. And I love what he says. Look what he says in answer to them. He says, Apollos has zero interest in coming back. He doesn't just say, sorry, can't get there right now, maybe someday in the future. No, no, no. Paul, being very transparent, says, ain't happening. He doesn't want to come back. Not going to do it. Why would he be so strong about it? Why wouldn't he at least have been more diplomatic? We don't know Apollos' reasons. We don't know if he ever did get back. I assume he didn't. But I think Apollos is staying away to avoid feeding that same unhealthy desire of followers. I don't think Apollos wanted followers any more than Paul wanted followers. And when he heard what's going on in the church, he says, I'm not going back there for fear of stoking that celebrity mindset. And I have a feeling that pastors who end up turning their own personal ministries into little celebrity jaunts are going to find that when they get to heaven and they hear the Lord's judgment of their work, that that's not going to be a plus on their side. That the, the way they took the attention of the world off of Christ and put it on themselves was not something that Christ was asking them to do. Now let's finish the letter. Paul gives a few final instructions. Verses 13 through 24. He says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Acacia and that they have devoted themselves from ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoiced over the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Archiacus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The church of Asia greets you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. 
All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. A couple of high points to comment on as we close. I really like Paul's direct commands there in verses 13 and 14. And given all that's been said in this letter, all the critique, you know, all of the admonishment, all the correction, he still wants to stir them to walk in, in the spirit in confidence, not defeated, not discouraged by what he said, but just rejuvenated to go do the right thing. He tells them to be alert. What he means is have eyes for eternity. Recognize the urgency of the times. Recognize the need to be soberly minded in the last days. Consider your coming judgment. Think about everything from those perspectives. Secondly, stand firm in the faith. Have courage. Have assurance that what you have believed in and have assurance in who you have believed in. Don't waver. And then he says to act like men. Now, this can be misinterpreted in our age. We have a heightened concern over gender roles and the like. But when he says to act like men, he says he means to be mature in your thinking concerning spiritual things. He doesn't mean act like men, not women. He means act like men, not children. Act like grown-ups. Think maturely about these things. The Greeks admired wisdom, and so Paul turns that around on them and says, okay, you admire wisdom, then seek spiritual wisdom. And then to be strong, Greeks admired physical strength. He says, well, aim for spiritual strength. A strength built on that spiritual wisdom. And then lastly, most of all, act in love. You know, love that God showed us in the face of Christ. The face of Christ must be that source for us to show love to others. That self-sacrificial love, that selfless love, the love that's intended to unite, not to divide. That's what Paul's preached in this letter. And then his last instruction is on accepting other men in leadership. He mentions this man Stephanus and two others who would come from Corinth. And that delegation, I suspect, is the ones who would brought this letter back to them. You know, this thing that Paul just wrote that we just read had to get back to Corinth somehow. I believe it's carried with Chloe and the delegation, but also with these three men Paul sends along. And they're going, why? To enforce what Paul wrote. To be his eyes and ears on the ground to make sure that everything he's asked would get done. But he says, acknowledge their authority. He wants them to subject themselves, the church to subject themselves to these men. What Paul says here affirms for us a truth that I think is lost in our independent, non-denominational, Bible-based church mindset, which is that men are assigned authority in the church by God through an anointing, recognized through other men, but that authority follows them. That's why we say once an elder, always an elder. You're not an elder in a context. You either are or you aren't. You're either a leader in the church or you're not. And if you have the, the character the wisdom, the experience to qualify as a leader in the church and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach, then that goes with you. And it should be received as such everywhere in the church. And then Paul ends in his classic way with greetings. He mentions a couple of people you know from elsewhere, Aquila, Priscilla. This is the couple that came from Rome to join Paul in Corinth originally. And then they had a house church there. Then when Paul left for Ephesus, they followed Paul to Ephesus, set up a house church there. I could teach a whole Sunday just on them. I mean, think about what they just did. They learned of the gospel, got engaged in ministry as a couple, and as a model, they're a perfect model of how couples should minister in the church, in my opinion. They minister together. They devote their lives to ministry. They use their resources for the glory of God. They set up shop wherever God sends them. They just keep doing the same thing everywhere they go. That's what we should all be doing. And then finally, Paul's 
greeting, a kiss, a warning that they should reject those who reject Christ. And then he ends the letter the way he started. Grace to the church. He started by saying grace to you. He ends by saying grace to you. There's no single word that you could use that better sums up the Christian experience and all that Christ has done for the church. Grace. Unmerited favor. And the call of the church for you and I, according to Paul, is that we would live according to that grace. Extended to us, we extend it to others. Showing each other favor without cause, without merit. Glory be to God, grace be to us. Let's go to prayer as we've now finished the book of 1 Corinthians. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for all the lessons this book has given us over the months we've studied it. By my count, Father, there was better than 24 hours of speaking and many, many weeks of coming and listening to this, Father. And I pray that uh, there won't be a wasted word in there. And though my wisdom, Father, is unequal to the task of opening this book and, and teaching it in all that it offers. I pray, Lord, that it has been equal to at least the task you've given me and to the purposes you set forth in this church studying it, that we have learned what you've called us to learn, that we will apply it as we go forward in our walk, and that it will lead, Father, to greater obedience so that you may bless us in greater ways. And, Lord, I also pray that for the years who've heard, today and in, future, in past days, Father, that those ears, Father, would be turned to the truth of the gospel by your power. Let us go out from here, Father, living as we've learned and praising your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.